Yeah, if only that wasn't so accurate, right? We're, uh, we're in week two of this Parent Fail series that we've been in, and uh, we've been sharing all kinds of stories. If you haven't been following those videos online, you should follow those online. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And, and last week, I told you guys about uh, just one of the thousands of parent fails in, going on in my house right now where uh, the three-and-a-half-year-old Bo won't potty train. And I told you his whole routine of how he'll go to the drawer and he'll get out the, the, the pad and the wipes and the, and the diaper and the whole nine yards, and he'll just lay down on it. I got home from preaching last Sunday, and I kid you not, the very first thing he did was go over to that drawer and so I thought it'd be good to take a picture of him in the moment (laughs) it's like change me dad I'm like are you kidding me I do have this to announce though he did use a toilet successfully once this week so apparently apparently public shaming is the uh, best motivation for potty training so I'm gonna lay it on thick this week but yeah lots of those stories have been rolling in my brother-in-law actually texted my wife last week because they they live in Florida they've been following this series they follow us online and everything and he and he texted my wife and said hey does this qualify as a as a parent fail he said that he had uh, one night he threw away his dip spitter and if you're not from the south and you don't know what a dip spitter is ask your neighbor he threw away his dip spitter in the in the trash can the next morning uh, he has three kids one of his sons went dumpster diving and got into the trash and pulled that out unscrewed the top and did what's some of us have done at a frat party before where you, uh, yeah, took a big swig and then, <laughs> and then vomited all over the place and they called the doctor. The doctor said, it's fine as long as he threw up and all that kind of stuff. And so we've all, I mean, if you're a parent, you've got parent fail stories. You've got a lot of them. So I was, I was kind of going through a file of my parent fail stories, just thinking of some of them. And I was thinking about, I think it was like, so Eli's like 11 now. He was roughly around 40. So like six, seven years ago, something like that. We were doing these, these events around the church called backyard barbecues and they were supposed to foster like community and so we threw these like these parties in in community parks and neighborhood parks and things like that and so because I'm like the pastor I felt like I had to go to the one in our neighborhood and no I'm an introvert and so so we went to the one in our neighborhood and, and I was I had like a task or a duty I think I was flipping flipping burgers or hot dogs or something like that and again Eli was about four at the time and Eli in our old neighborhood had this this other boy in the neighborhood who was like his arch nemesis like whenever they got near each other they just got in a fight like immediately and so uh, this apparently happened and what Eli has this tendency to do is he will take whatever level of aggression somebody displays towards him and he will up the ante And so I don't know exactly what had happened to Eli, uh, but I do know that he went and got a wiffle ball bat. And so he went and got a wiffle ball bat. And you know that part of your back, like right here, that if someone just like smacks it perfectly, it just stings for like a week? Eli aimed for that part of this kid's back. He reared back, he swung, he hit this kid in the back. And to Eli's horror, the kid turned around and revealed this wasn't his arch nemesis. This was his best friend. And uh, so it was one of those moments where, like, again, as a dad, you just go, let's just call it a day. Let's just go home. Let's pull the blinds. Let's just not come out until the kids are, are tame. You know, let's, let's not do that. And, and that's what a lot of us find ourselves doing in parenting is we want to remove ourselves. We just kind of want to isolate ourselves and we want to hide. And if we're really, really honest, if I'm really, really honest, the reason I want to do that most of the time, if I'm honest, is rooted in this thing called pride. Not wanting other people to witness my children's behavior or the struggles that we have as a family is ultimately rooted in pride. And it goes back to this thing we talked about last week called identity parenting. And if you weren't here last week and you didn't catch that one, go back and listen or watch online because that's kind of foundational for this entire series that we're in. And identity parenting simply means this. When you're attempting to gain and shape your identity through your child, for good or for bad, 
That's identity parenting. Allowing our children's behavior to shape our value and our worth is a trap that I've fallen into as a parent thousands and thousands of times. And, and, and God has this really interesting way of dealing with your pride as a parent. For me, what he does is he just gives me kids that just like kick my tail. That, that, that's what he does. And that's what God did, did with us. My oldest, who's, who's 13, her name is Landry. When, when we had Landry, I'll, I'll be super honest with you, she was an easy baby. And I didn't really realize how easy she was at the time. Now I realize, I mean, she was one of those babies who like slept really good, kind of right out of the gate. She was the kind of toddler who you could like sit down and put some toys around her. And she would just sit there and smile and play with those toys. And she would never try to wander off and set fire to the house or anything like that. I mean, she was just a really easy baby. Now, now, I made the, the mistake of thinking that this was the result of my good parenting, not God's good graces. And so I started to believe this illusion that, man, we're really good at this. Like, we're really good at having kids, and, and we're really good parents. We didn't ask anybody else for help or advice or anything because we're really, really good at this. And I, it was like, hey, Allie, let's have another one. Because apparently we're like the best parents that have ever walked the face of the earth. And so then God obliged. And he gave us another one, and that one's name is Eli. And Eli, we learned when he was born, is an entirely different creature altogether than my daughter was. I mean, Eli was literally just a savage in every good and bad sense of the word. I mean, he was just totally different. He didn't sleep. He wanted to eat all the time. Uh, he is just ferociously, ferociously loyal, which is a really, really good thing. I mean, there's things about him that I absolutely love. He's blatantly honest. You can look at Eli and go, did you punch that kid? He'll go, yep, twice. I mean, that's, that's, that's how Eli is, is wired. And whatever he's feeling, he will let you know. But at the end of the day, Eli was this whole new challenge that was entirely humbling. And then, and then God, God gave us this other boy named Silas. And Silas is totally different than and Eli is completely different from Eli. He's unbelievably, sometimes dangerously curious. He always wants to take things apart. He set our pantry on fire one time. One time I was working in the backyard and I kept hearing him go, hey dad, hey dad, hey dad. And I couldn't find him anywhere until I looked up and he was on the roof, the roof of the house. Like, how, how did you get there? And I still don't really know how he got there. That's, he owes me literally $3,000 uh, because of damages done to my plumbing by experimenting with what will flush down the toilet and what will not. <laughs> flush down the toilet. And then God gave us this other little boy named Bo, who again is, is totally different. Most days, Bo really believes that he's a pirate. He really takes on the identity of a pirate. And so with each child, God has just chiseled away my pride as a parent because each one of them are totally different from one another. And it's a really, really humbling task to be a parent. And as I talked to people in the lobby last week, one of the things that a lot of times we struggle with as parents is we look back and we go, man, if I had known then what I know now, things would have been different, right? <laughs> I mean, we all look back and we have those things called parental regrets. I look back and go, man, I wish, I wish I'd have known then what I know now or what I'm now learning, whatever that is. And, and for me, I have a lot of those. I look back and I go, I really wish I would have read more parenting books when I was a younger parent. But even more than that, you know what I wish I would have done? I wish I would have asked more questions. I wish I would have asked more questions. I wish I would have looked around at other parents that I respected, and there were plenty of them around. And I wish I would have asked for two things at least. I wish I would have asked for more help, and I wish I would have asked for more advice. I wish I would have asked for both of those things. And, and I do this a couple times a week now. Like I, I feel like sometimes around the office, there's a few of us, we just get together, we shut the door, and we go, okay, let me tell you what's going on with my kids right now. And then we just bounce things off of each other, and we try to learn from each other. But one of the things that gets in the way of doing that is, again, this thing called pride. 
And here's the thing, okay? The parents you want both help and advice from are the least likely to give you unsolicited advice. Does that make sense? Here's why. Because good parents don't usually see themselves as experts in regards to parenting. And to top it off, good parents are usually socially aware enough not to go around handing out free advice to people who aren't asking for it. They're not going to do that because they, they wouldn't have liked that when they, were, when they were parenting their kids either. Good parents have had their butt kicked enough to not perceive themselves as experts. So here's, here's the tricky thing. The only way that you're going to get those two things, both help and advice, from other parents that you look around at, and this is regardless of your children's stage of life. You, you, your children could be 65 years old and this is still important. The only way for this to happen is for you to be in relationship with them, with those other parents, and you're going to have to just blatantly ask them for help and advice. You're going to have to just blatantly ask. And sometimes, sometimes this, this shows up. I see it a lot in younger parents. Now I can, I can see it because that's how I was. Is a lot of times what younger parents will do is they'll only want to surround themselves with other younger parents. They'll only want to hang out with other younger parents. They'll only want to do life with other younger parents because they kind of go, nobody else fully understands what I'm completely going through except people who are currently going through it with me. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of validity to that. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of help that can be had through just kind of doing life with people who are in the same foxhole at the same time but one of the things that's missing in that equation is that there is a benefit from from being around and and in relationship with people who are just a little bit further down the road than you are because ultimately a lot of times what we need when we're young parents and we're living in those dark ages when kids are in diapers and in car seats to take an hour to, to get you know buckled up and all that kind of thing what we ultimately need is we need somebody who's just a little further down the road to look at us to kind of grab us by the face and go it'll be okay right you will survive, you will make it, you aren't crazy, right? And you're just really, really tired right now. Sometimes that's just what younger parents need to hear from some people a little further down the road. Now, think about this. This is also true when your kids are much older. When your kids are rebelling, when, when, when they're running away from home, when there's all kinds of struggles at school, when there's struggles with, 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 with alcohol or drugs or whatever that may be, there's this strong temptation to take on your children's rebellion as your identity and to allow their rebellion to define you and again you can take kids out of the equation this is just this is just about life when life gets painful when life gets hard including in parenting parenting just symptomatic of this we tend to do something that that is really the worst thing that we could possibly do when life gets painful when life gets difficult the number one thing that we have a tendency to do is simply this we isolate we isolate ourselves we withdraw now if we think about this, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because remember what I said about parenting last week? Remember the way I defined parenting? Parenting is the single most overwhelming task given by God to men and women in the history of the universe. Like again, that might be an overstatement, but it sure doesn't feel like it when you're a parent. That feels about right, doesn't it? So, so when you say it out loud and then you go, so what would isolation parenting be? Well, isolation parenting would be our attempt to accomplish the most overwhelming, single most overwhelming task in the history of the universe given by God to men and women alone so so when you say it out loud you go well that that sounds what crazy that sounds totally counterintuitive but that's what we do when life gets painful when life gets difficult when life gets hard we tend to isolate ourselves and the reality is this isolation is never the solution to pain and adversity isolation is never ever 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 the solution to pain and adversity we we tend to live in this illusion that it is but it's but it's not and that's what we do 
So you might right now be going, well, what would, what would isolation parenting look like? Like, how could you, like, identify that in your life? And again, I, I'm, I'm an expert at this, all right? So, so this is what I struggle with all the time. It, it looks like these types of things. Refusing to go out in public with their children for fear of their behavior being witnessed by others. Uh, hesitation to even talk about your children with, with other people that you're in relationship with. Pretending everything's okay when it's not okay. A stubborn refusal to ask for help or advice. So like if a few minutes ago when I talked about asking for help and advice, if your first reaction was go, well, I'm not doing that, that's probably revealing that you have a tendency to fall into this trap of, of isolation parenting. Another one is this, feeling like a failure as a parent and believing that you're the only one out there who's having this kind of struggle. The only way for us to fall into that temptation to believe that we're the only one is to live as if we're the only one. Does that make sense? So like if we isolate ourselves and we just totally remove ourselves from other people, we have no opportunity to witness this spectacular thing called, oh, they struggle with the same thing I struggle with, me too, right? Or how about this one? Creating a picture online that is only the good side of your family, right? Make, make, making it look like it's always sunshine and always roses at your house on Facebook, but the reality is that's not really what life looks like at your house all the time. And at the root of all of these things is pride. We might go, well, no, actually the root of it is shame or embarrassment or fear. All of those things, I believe, are, are derivatives of this thing called pride. Pride goes first. So let's go back to what we learned last week. When we live out of our identity as God's children, we don't have to try to gain our identity from our children. When we get this right, right, when we go, okay, we're children of God, that means I don't have to try to gain my identity through my children. When I know that in Christ I'm secure, I don't have to walk in the insecurity that parenting can so easily create, right? That's what we talked about last week. So if that's true, what that means is this. We don't have to pretend that everything's okay when it's not okay. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We don't have to pretend that we have it all figured out. We don't have to hide because we obviously don't have it all figured out. And as it turns out, here's what God has done. This is beautiful. God has given us exactly what we need to accomplish this task called parenting. Number one, he's given us the security of parenting under his authority. He's given us the security of parenting under his authority, and we'll talk about that. Number two, he's given us the opportunity to parent in the context of this beautiful thing called community. And both of those things point to this awesome reality that goes simply like this. We don't have to be alone as parents. We don't have to do this thing called parenting alone. Because authority, when it's, when it's, when it's good and when it's right, is beautiful. When you have an authority figure in a life who's ultimately good and right, that's a beautiful thing. Because having an authority figure in life actually serves as a protection for you, a cover for you. That's what authority is for. And what we're going to learn is that God has established this pattern and it plays out in his kingdom, it plays out in his church, and it plays out in families where he delivers his good gifts through an authority structure and its protection and its provision, which is really the definition of love. So, th so think about this, all right? Why is it that parenting books and blogs and websites and strategies are so popular? 
Why do those things just fly off the shelves? Why do people subscribe to them so often? Why is that such a big deal in our life? And I think it's simply because of this. Because we're looking for an authority in something that really, really matters. We're looking around at this thing called parenting going, man, this is challenging. This is difficult. I don't know how to do this. Nobody handed me a playbook on how to do this. And so I'm looking for an authority in my life to tell me what to do. Someone who will say, do this and do this, and then that will happen. This will be the result with your, with your children, right? And fortunately, we don't have to go around looking all over the place for this authority. We have this authority. God has given this to us. God didn't just hand us kids and go, I, you know what? I came with this, up with this idea of people having kids, but I don't have any idea how to raise them. You could go figure it out and write a book or a blog or something. That's not what God does. He doesn't do that with life either. He doesn't turn us loose with life and go, I don't know. You guys figure it out. Have fun out there. That's not... That's not what he does. That's not what a good authority figure would do, right? So he's our authority, and he hasn't left us alone to figure this out. He's given us everything that we need in his word to accomplish this task called parenting. So here's what I want to do, okay? I want to look at a couple different scriptures, really, really simple scriptures. They're both found in the book of Psalms. If you've got your Bible, you just kind of flip to the middle, you'll probably land in the Psalms. And, and I want to look at a couple specific ones that fall in a certain category of Psalms. Every now and then when you're reading through the Psalms, what you'll see is this. You'll, you'll see these little subtitles, and some of them say, a Psalm of Ascents. Okay, a, a psalm of ascents, which were these unique songs or poems that were recited when people would go up to Jerusalem. So in, in the Jewish faith, there, there are all these famous feasts. The most famous of them all was this one called Passover. And, and one time a year, everybody would try to gather from wherever they lived, and they would, they would try to make this journey to Jerusalem so they could be in Jerusalem for this feast. And so on their way as a community together, what they would do is they would sing these songs, and they would recite these poems, and they would say them together. It was really a beautiful picture of this thing called community. Everybody going to one place to worship their God, they would go up to Jerusalem and do it together. Jesus did this with, with his family. There's a pretty famous story about Jesus where this, where this happened. This is actually like Jesus' parents' parent fail moment. Ch- check this out, Luke chapter 2. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, there it is, according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. They're already a day away, so another day to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So again, this is Joseph and Mary's big parent fail. You guys give me a hard time about how I left Silas in the park for like 20 minutes. Joseph and Mary left the son of God for five days, all right? So I'm in good company, all right? That's all I want you to know. But, but look, if you really look at the context of this, it's really beautiful, isn't it? Because here's, here's Joseph and Mary, all right? Jesus is 12 years old. He's one year from being, being considered a man in their culture. They got younger kids now, and they're traveling back home together amongst their family and amongst their friends, and they just made this assumption, right? It's a beautiful assumption, I think, that Jesus was just among them, that he was just with them. How beautiful a picture is that, is that you could even make that assumption. I mean, they're the exact opposite of helicopter parents, right? They're not worried. They're not afraid. They're just going, he's got to be among us somewhere, right? You've got to live in a pretty cool community for that to even be your assumption. And this is the way it worked. They would all travel together. 
to worship one God, their authority that they lived under, and these communities, as they would travel up and down from Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And here's one of them I want to look at. Check this one out. In Psalm 127, you've heard me talk about it before. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Now, we're going to break down some more of that passage next week, but here's all I want us to see this week in, in that passage. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. So heritage is really the same word for inheritance, which means that something was first owned by someone before it was passed down to someone else, which means that our children first and foremost belong to who? God. They are his kids first. They belong to him, which means that we are under God's authority as parents. He's entrusted those kids to us, but ultimately they belong to him. And that is a very, very good thing. That means that we do not, we're not relegated to just making up this parenting thing as we go. We get to live under God's authority as parents in the lives of our children. And, and Paul Tripp refers to our role as parents in the lives of our children. Again, if you didn't get that book, Parenting Book by Paul Tripp last week, order it this week. It's phenomenal. He says our role is really that of being ambassadors in the lives of our kids. And think about what an ambassador does, right? Like an ambassador has, a, has authority, but that authority is directly tied to a higher authority. So the ambassador's authority is directly tied to like the king's authority or the president's authority, right? So our role in the lives of our children, our authority is directly tied to a much higher authority. And it's a beautiful picture. Again, God delivers his good gifts through this pattern of authority in his kingdom, in his church, and in families. And it's always been this way. If you go way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on whose heart? Your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. So the pattern goes like this. God first speaks to us as parents. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, here's the reality, okay? We cannot give what we don't have we can't give what we don't have we cannot teach diligently we can't diligently teach our kids to worship a god that we don't worship it doesn't work that way listen so i'm a i'm a coach okay i coach i coach baseball i coach basketball you know what i don't coach football i mean i watch football i understand some things about football but i never played football so i can't impart the same level of knowledge about football as i can about baseball and basketball i mean i do know that the falcons should have run the ball when they were in field goal territory last week <laughs> But other than that, I don't have a lot. I mean, I'm no rocket scientist, but I, I don't have a lot to give. So I can't give what I don't have. So, so the first issue is this, and this is a question we have to ask. Have I put myself under God's authority? Have I put myself under God's authority? You, you could ask it this way. Am I living in willing submission to King Jesus? And he is king. The only question is, am I rebelling against him or am I living in willing submission to him? Because I cannot teach my kids to live and to submit underneath of an authority that I'm willing to submit myself to. So that whole idea of do as I say, not as I do, by the way, does not work. It's ineffective. 
And the reason this is so challenging for some of us is because, listen, we're all, just like our kids are, we're all natural-born rebels. In other words, we naturally resist authority at all levels. We don't want to live under authority. We want to be our own authority. We want to do our own thing. And that, again, goes back to this thing that's at the root of a lot of things, right, called pride. So we have to see this resistance to authority in ourselves first before we try to deal with it in the hearts and minds of our children so again Paul Tripp in that book he asked this he says do you humbly own the rebellion of your own heart as you deal with the rebellion of your children in a way that causes you to exercise authority with patience and grace see it's really painful when we have to when we have to see our own rebellion be reflected back to us in the rebellion of our children when I first started having kids it it used to drive me nuts when one of my kids would be defiant or disobedient or talk back to me in the presence of my parents because my parents would laugh you know why because they're like you're getting yours it's about time right like you used to do this to me all the time because this tape gets played over and over and over again because rebellion runs deep resisting authority comes naturally we see it in our kids in all these moments throughout every day in other words the battle over eating their broccoli is not a battle about broccoli it's because they don't want to be underneath of anyone's authority just like we don't want to be underneath of anyone's authority the battle over cleaning their room is not really about cleaning their room it's about resisting authority the fights over weed and alcohol and sneaking out at night and a million other things that's that's about the pride in all of us that says you know what I don't want to live underneath of your authority your rules or your protection or your provision I'll do it my way and I'll do it on my terms so when dealing with our kids rebellion to our authority we have to admit our rebellion to God's authority in our life and once I'm living under submission and living under authority then and only then can I take up my authority as a parent or as an ambassador to my children and then that whole Deuteronomy thing comes into play where every opportunity along the way is an opportunity to teach as we get up as we walk along the road at breakfast at the park at school at the baseball field lying down at dinner whatever that is those are all opportunities to teach and diligently teach our children and to exercise our authority in their lives as loving ambassadors. In other words, the way we display and use our authority in the lives of our children creates a picture of how God is to our children. Now here's the real tricky part, for good or for bad. The way we wield our authority in the lives of our children paints a picture for them of who God is for good or for bad, which means this. This is me talking about me. If I exercise my authority over my kids in a way that's inconsistent, driven by emotion or mean-spirited, that's what my children will ultimately come to believe to be true about God because I'm always painting a picture for them of what God is like, whether I like it or not. So how about that for pressure, right? And this is what makes me feel like the parent fail poster child because I have this tendency, especially with my kids, to, to use my intimidating, you know, manner. I have a deep voice. I can sound really mean. I like, they talk about this, this like line that I can get right here, you know, and this look goes a long way with like a four-year-old. But my 11-year-old, I'm noticing something in him and it goes like this. When I give him that look, he mirrors a look back to me like, come on, Right? <laughs> Which means that I cannot only rely on this, it's not going to work for very long, right? I can't, I can't just live in that place where I'm relying on size and intimidation as the way that I discipline my, my kids. 
Again, it's, it's Paul Tripp who says it this way. He says, you have no ability, take a picture of this, you have no ability at all by the tone of your voice, by the force of your personality, by your physical size, or by threats to deliver your children from their addiction to self-rule. If you had that power, and here's the good news, Jesus and his work would not have been necessary But Jesus does have the power. He cares so much about the dark delusion of self-rule that lives in the hearts of all of our children that he literally gave his life so that they would be rescued and this bondage broken. We're not very good saviors. Thanks be to God, Jesus is. And here's where I really struggle as a parent. When, When leveraging authority... Here's here's the tricky part. We're kind of stuck in this this place, right? When leveraging our authority as a parent, it's really important that we win. It's really, really important that we win. And and here's here's the thing. As parents, we get really tired, don't we? And there's times where it's like, you know what? Just throw up the white flag, just call today and give up on whatever it is, whether it's eating the broccoli, going to bed, cleaning the room, coming home for curfew, abiding by house rules, whatever that is. And if we let our kids win, it's in those little moments, it seems like a little thing. But those small things, those little things eventually become very big things. Because here's what happens. When they win, it reinforces their delusion that they are self-ruling sovereign tyrants. When we let them win, it confirms their suspicion that they know better than us, right? Some of the parents are going, stop it. I mean, some of the kids are going, stop it. Stop it right now. Don't talk about this anymore. So, so even if that means that, you know, you got a little one, you're trying to make them go to bed. Even if that means we've got to go up those stairs a thousand times. And believe me, I've had a million nights where it feels like it was a thousand times. I went up and down the stairs and put the same two or three kids back in the same two or three beds. Even if that means you got to sit there with the, with the plate of broccoli, whatever that is. Because here's the reality. If we draw a line, whatever that line may be, if we set a rule, whatever that rule may be, if it's 10 minutes late for curfew, whatever that is, we have to win the battle. And we get tired. And a lot of times we don't win those battles. And I've, I've done this a lot where it's just like, eh, whatever. And just give up. But we have to know that when we give up, here's what we're doing. And we all do it, but we need to understand what we're doing when we do it. When we give up, we are teaching. We are always teaching. We're never off the clock. They're always paying attention. And whether we like it or not, they're watching and they're learning. Now, here's the thing that I'm, I'm stuck between, though. Okay, and This is just me, like, vomiting stuff, all right? For me, and this is not everybody's struggle, but for me, surrendering is not really the thing that, that, that gets me most of the time because I'm super competitive, all right? So I will win, all right, with the 13-year-old, with the three-year-old, and every kid in between, I'll win. I will. I, I, I'll, I'll make sure that I win. But the way that I win is oftentimes a loss. Does that make sense? That's why that quote that I read from Paul Tripp was so difficult for me to read. Because, because for now, again, I have this tendency. I, I tend to rely on size and intimidation and tone of voice and all those things that he listed And that, if I'm honest, at the end of the day, that is not the way that God works with me. So when I win, but I win poorly, that doesn't reflect well on who God is or the way that God treats me as his child. Let's be honest. Step back from this for a moment, all right? All of us can answer this question. You don't have to be a parent at all to get this question, okay? What kind of obedience do you think God wants from us as his children? Do you think God wants to, like, fine, you know, stomp our feet, 
go up the stairs, slam the door kind of obedience? Or do you think that God is after a glad and willing submission to his authority because I trust that his intentions towards me are good? I mean, ultimately, that's what God's after, right? As a, as a good father, that's what God would want because all of us as parents, that's what we ultimately would want. Sometimes we, as human parents, we'll settle. Like, all right, fine, at least they clean their room. I don't care if they slam their door first. But God, that's not what he's ultimately after in us. He's not after like this begrudging obedience. He's after a glad and willing submission to his authority because ultimately we trust that his intentions towards us are good. And that's a long road. That's a long path to get our hearts to that point, right? Like when I look at my life, the things that I now recognize as good about God's word and God's plan and God's will and what God's doing and all those things, I didn't recognize as good when I was 17, right? But at 37, there's some things that now I see as good. I can look in the rearview mirror and see those things. And I imagine when I'm 67, I'll see some more stuff that I don't currently see now. We have to take the long view as parents because God takes the long view with us. God is really, really patient with us. And our transformation doesn't happen overnight. Neither will our children's. So what I'm learning is this. When when one of my kids stomps off to obey, (laughs) right, I have to call him back to me. And not give in to the temptation of doing what comes natural to me, which is just to yell at them and berate them and tell them one more time, you know, why they shouldn't have done that and all that kind of stuff. Because if I'm super honest with you, my natural inclination is not for us to sit around and talk about feelings. Like, if I'm really honest with you, I wish that the the reason, because I said so, would carry more weight than, than it does, right? But it's important for me to call my kids back and go, okay, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to slam the door before you go do what I told you to do. What I'm looking for is for you to understand why I want good for you. I'm not trying to ruin your day. I'm not trying to spoil your fun. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I actually love you and I want good for you. Well, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of like, that takes a lot of concern. That takes a lot of effort. And I would just rather just go because I said so. But I have to love my kids better than that. See, I have to understand this principle in my own life before I can ever teach it to my kids. And it goes like this. True obedience always begins with the heart. And Jesus hit this all the time, right? He would look at self-righteous hypocrites and go, that's not even what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this external obedience apart from internal transformation. I'm looking for the kind of obedience that's the overflow of an obedient heart. So, so God's given us the security of parenting under his authority. That's a beautiful gift. It means at least these things, we're not alone. He's with us, and he's told us what to do. That's, that, that right there is awesome, but it doesn't stop there. Here, here's, here's another beautiful thing he gives us. He's given us the opportunity to parent in the context of community. Look at this other psalm, Psalm 133. This is also one of those psalms of ascent. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So again, picture that. They're singing that psalm as they're together going to Jerusalem together to worship the same God. Same family, same community, same friends. They all look around and they go, you know what this is? This is good. This is pleasant. And even if life's been really difficult lately, you've got some memories like that. You've got some memories of being at a park or a cul-de-sac or a backyard or whatever that is. And there's just friends and neighbors around and you just go, man, this is good. This is pleasant. Even if family holidays aren't always fun, you've got a few memories, right, where you go, you know, having everybody under the same roof together at Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever that is, this is good. And for now, it's pleasant. 
right? We've got, um, we've got some friends. They've, they've got five kids. We, we've, we've got four. And it's just fun to trade stories with them. If nothing else, it's just fun to hang out and trade stories. Our kids did this and your kids did that. Because all, all that does is reinforce, man, we're not alone and we're not crazy. And that we're going through the same things at the same time. And if I'm really, really honest with you, I have, some, I have some simple goals for this series. And one of those simple goals is for those in this, in this church to know that if you're a parent, you are not alone, you aren't the only one, and you aren't crazy. That would be a win in this series. But here's the reality, okay? Not, no one, this church included, cannot make you as an individual family lean into community. We can't create that for you. We can't force it on you. We can't make you pursue it or choose it, and it won't happen overnight. We can't manufacture it for you overnight. When we live in community, it's a beautiful opportunity to understand that, man, our struggles are rarely unique. There are other folks around here who have gone through or are going through exactly what you're going through right now. So what this psalm is pointing to is how good and pleasant it is, not just when we're together in proximity, Like right now, this is good, we're together in proximity, but also what makes it really good is being together in purpose. Together in in, in purpose. Everyone chasing after the same God, everyone teaching the same truth, everyone pointing their kids in the same direction, going, this is who we are, this is who we worship, this is what we're about. And when you have that, it's it's good and it's pleasant. And And the church has always been meant to be the best reflection of that kind of community this side of heaven. I mean, if you press rewind on the tape, And you go back to when the first church began a couple thousand years ago. Look at what it looked like. Acts chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, here it is, together and had how many things in common? All things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if they were together in all things, if they shared all things in common, all things must include children. Now, that doesn't mean that that person over there had the same level of authority in the life of your child as you have in the life of your child. What that meant was is that everybody did this together. No one had to parent in isolation. No one had to do that. I mean, you, you could choose to do that, but what, why would you choose to do that? Look at Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. No one did anything alone, much less parenting. And here's, here's the truth, all right? Let, let's not over-spiritualize what we're reading about right here. Just because it was good didn't, believe, didn't mean it wasn't messy, right? Whenever you add people to the equation, it's going to be messy. Community, by definition, means it's going to be messy. That doesn't mean every moment was pleasant, but overall, doing this together was pleasant. It was better than doing it alone, Right? that means they shared life they shared meals and ultimately here's what it means they shared sins there's no way you can do that kind of life with one another without seeing the sin in one another's lives and what what James says is simply this therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in other words be on one another's team that you may be healed and in order to do that to live in that kind of interaction where you're just going man I'm struggling you're struggling we're struggling I sinned I messed up I I'm really having trouble over here to live that kind of life is going to require us to let go of our pride and so you know what this isn't working for me to live in isolation 
and to try to do the most difficult task ever handed to human beings in the history of the universe alone, it's just not working. Which means we're going to have to do this thing we talk about around here all the time called repent. We're going to have to turn away from what's not working and we're going to have to adopt an entirely new strategy and walk past, walk back towards what God says is right and true and beautiful and good. Right? Which is parenting under his authority and in community. So as a church, we're called to provide one another with opportunities. We can't, we can't be substitute parents in the lives of, of each other's children's, children, but we can help one another and we can do this together. And so we imperfectly are trying to do this as a community. That's why we have Summit Ministry. Across all of our campuses, I think Summit Ministry is incredible. Circle of Friends, incredible resource. Student Ministries, Rev and C-Squared for middle school and high school. Uh, that's why we have this thing called Fathers in the Field that, that's been so poignant in the lives of so, so many. If you didn't know, we have this parenting podcast where we have people get on this podcast and respond to questions that people in our community send in, just struggles in parenting. And nobody's an expert on that thing, but we do just talk about what we've learned along the way. We're launching next weekend when this series ends, we're launching an entire new section of our website that's going to be developed to just parenting resources. It's going to be videos, it's going to be blogs, it's going to be articles, it's going to be old sermons, all kinds of things on there so that we can just again together try to do this really, really difficult task that God has given us in the context that he says is right and best and true to do it. Because think about this, all right? If living in community with one another is, is described as good and pleasant, then what is living in isolation? It's not good. And it's really, really unpleasant. And some of us can go, yep, it is, because that's where I'm living right now. Look at this picture that's painted in the book of Romans. Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word harmony is really, really interesting, isn't it? What it means is this, it means a consistent, orderly, or pleasing arrangement of parts. That kind of describes the way the church is supposed to work, isn't it? Musically, it means the simultaneous combination of tones, different sounds, different voices. I don't know if you've ever experienced this phenomenon as a parent, but I certainly have. Where there's something I'm trying to teach my kids, something I'm trying to instill in them, ingrain in them, and it's like they're just not listening. They're not getting it. They're not hearing it. It's in one ear and out the other. And then someone else says it, Right? Someone else that they respect, usually like, you know, a coach or, a, or an uncle or a friend or a teacher, whoever that is, they say the exact same thing we've been saying for years. And all of a sudden it's your kid's like mission statement, right? They're like writing it on the wall. They're like, this is revolutionary. You're like, you got to be kidding me, right? I've been saying this to you for forever. Now we can either get mad about that or here, here's what would be better, right? We could leverage that and we could try to leverage other voices in the lives of our children who are going to point our children in the same direction they're going to come from different perspectives different tones different sounds but together if we point in the same direction that's better than what we could ever accomplish alone see God's given us the security of parenting under his authority and the opportunity to parent together in a community which means that we have this beautiful opportunity to bring each of us what God has given us to the table and in our own unique way speak into the lives of one another and together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ let's pray Father come before you right now and um Again, this, this, this parenting thing is really challenging. And ultimately, if we're, if we're super honest, just life is challenging. 
And oftentimes, God, when it gets painful, when it gets difficult, the first thing we want to do is we want to run away from one another. But God, again and again, when we look to you and we look to your word, what you call us to is to run toward one another. So God, I pray for our community, for our church, that you'll, you'll help us to just be open with one another, to share our lives with one another, and together with one voice in all things, we can glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.